Welcome, everyone, to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good. This was a super, super awesome interview. Um, We had Dan Eltzer on, and we talked about kind of the... We extrapolated the effects of gamifying everything, essentially. And um, I I would actually have to admit that this is the first interview that was uh, more Ether-focused, where I was kind of like, wow, that's pretty fucking awesome. Um, To caveat that, uh, I I definitely think that these experiments that we discussed on the podcast can apply to Bitcoin in the future and um, do apply to Bitcoin in a massive macro way already. Um, which we kind of allude to on the podcast, but still uh, very impressed with kind of the general topic. And I hope we have more podcasts like this. Like this was awesome, David. Yeah. Uh, when I had this like kind of click moment when I was uh, writing this article for um, Pool Together, on Pool Together, and then we interviewed Leighton and put that out. And that's when uh, Dan Eltzer reached out to me and, and on Twitter and t- we talked about all these uh, gamified systems um, and so I, I want I want to make a distinction for people to chew on before we get into the into the episode. But in the world of Ethereum, there we use the word games a lot. Uh, with when we talk about state channels and plasma, we talk about entry and exit games, little like mechanisms that players of stakeholders in a system have to to play in order for these systems to be able to talk to each other. Um, and then there's also just more general games that uh, we also might call dApps or apps like MakerDAO or Compound or Uniswap are, are in a way kind of games in the same way that kind of life is a game where like you have to decide like what you like in, in, the, in, the, in the same way that life is games, uh, specifically referring to uh, decision theory where, you know, every single choice that you make in your life is a small little game that you have to play and, and hopefully you, you make the right choice so you can win the game. Uh, in this particular episode, we are talking literally about games, like games, capital G games. These are games that you play with players and adversaries, and you you want to score a high score. Uh, and but but the difference is is these games are money games, uh, and this is something that could never have been done before before the blockchain because you need smart contracts to be able to do this. Uh, and so these are all about making games that operate with smart contracts where you can be financially rewarded for winning the game, but not like uh, two people put $10 of die on a table and then the winner of a chess match uh, gets the die. It's literally the, the money is the game and the game is the money. So let's get into it. So I'll leave the rest of the content for the interview with Dan. But first, I want to talk to you guys about Realty. We are, in Realty, I'm the COO of Realty, so full disclosure, we are a uh, tokenized real estate company. We're, I'm pretty sure, the only company issuing tokens that represent properties on Ethereum. Uh, so we have like seven properties available on our website. We just uh, p- put our flagship property, 9943 Marlowe, into Uniswap. Uh, and so uh, not only are we the first company to tokenize real estate, we're also the first company to provide liquidity, liquidity to real estate. Uh, it's been pretty fun going to uniswapdex.com and, and watching people buy and sell real estate through Uniswap instantaneously. So uh, pretty cool innovation. If you guys haven't heard of us, check us out at realty.co. Uh, our tokens go for as low as $63. And we also pay you your rent every single day using the DAI stablecoin. Uh, so pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, also only open to international investors. Sorry. 
That part always makes me lull. But uh, in general, very impressed with the progress of, of Realty and, uh, you know, you, your your impact on the project as a whole is pretty cool to watch. Oh, thanks, man. Getting into our second sponsor, eToro. You've heard it many times before. Uh, dude, this company is just doing such cool things. Uh, in terms of their actual product, they're trying to make it as easy as possible for you to take advantage of any trading or investing strategy um, that you want with a one click of the mouse, right? So they have this copy trader feature where you can follow any trader and match whatever trade they do. But they also have uh, kind of predefined portfolios. Um, they allow you to uh, they allow you to dollar cost average. They allow you to do a lot of cool stuff. Um, within uh, kind of the uh, copy trader feature set. And really what it does is it it makes, you know, it enables you to invest in crypto the way that you want. Um, And on top of that, they are putting money into evangelizing crypto like no one else. Like really, no one compares. They've done several mainstream commercials already. Um, Their most recent one with Alec Baldwin, uh, I thought was very good. David is saying he loved it. Hilarious. Like, I mean, hats Hilarious. off to these guys. Like, in terms of uh, you know doing Bitcoin's uh, bidding and and marketing for Bitcoin, eToro is doing that, and I love to see it. If you guys want to check out eToro, if you want to check out their investing products, um, go to b.tc backslash eToro pov. B.tc backslash eToro pov. I promise soon we're getting a better link, but until then. Go there so we get credit and check out eToro. Check out the Alec Baldwin commercial. And uh, one more thing before we get into the episode. Christian and I are doing Movember. Uh, we are both growing out our beards. So if you guys are watching on YouTube, you can see Christian shake his mustache at you. Uh, and so we're all, and in the perfect POV fashion, we are turning this into a game. Uh, and so the way that this works is that we have uh, two addresses, one Ethereum, one Bitcoin, and uh, Bitcoiners donate to the Bitcoin address, Ethereans donate Ether and Die to the Ethereum address, and then between Christian and I, who, whoever side donates less, the, the host that is the loser of the game has to make up for the difference. And so if, if uh, $500 of Ether gets donated and $300 of Bitcoin gets donated, Christian's got to put up uh, $200. So uh, we're already up $10. We're, we've received our first donation, 10 die. So Christian's in the hole for, for $10. So uh, let's, let's make him pay, guys. Let's do it. Bitcoiners, help me out here. I, I don't, I don't want to lose my sats. So donate <laughs> some of your sats for men's health. <laughs> Uh, David, we need to choose a specific nonprofit to donate to, but hopefully we can find a reputable one for men's health that accepts crypto so we don't have to sell it or give them fiat, but uh, we will be keeping you guys posted. But without further ado, let's get right into it. Dan Eltzer, let's go. All right, guys, I've got Dan Elitzer here on POV Crypto. Dan, thanks for coming on. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dan, uh, you and I really have just started talking through Twitter after I released that Pool Together uh, article talking about the intersection of games, money, and blockchain. Uh, so I, I need this as well, but our listeners will, will also like it. Can you kind of explain your background and what you're doing in crypto land? Sure. So I started kind of down the Bitcoin rabbit hole back in 2013. Um, I'd seen Bitcoin previously and kind of dismissed it, um, but then started reading a little bit more, trying to understand it. I was coming at it from the perspective of uh, uh, open payments network initially. Um, I happened to be heading to grad school at MIT at the time, ended up starting the MIT Bitcoin Club. And in 2014, worked with Jeremy Rubin and we did uh, a distribution where we did a, a study and gave all the MIT undergrads $100 in Bitcoin back in the fall of 2014. Um, and then following kind of graduating the next spring, I ended up joining IDEO. Uh, for this team called IDEO Collab that was focused on uh, what are blockchains good for beyond just Bitcoin. Um, and we did some kind of corporate collaborative R&D stuff for a while, and we're still doing some of that. Uh, but about a year and a half ago, we launched a crypto-focused venture fund. And so we've been investing in and working with early stage blockchain crypto focused teams uh, for about a year and a half now. So in your uh, discovery process about what blockchains are good for outside of Bitcoin, what have you discovered? Um, <laughs> uh, I would say like money and financial use cases are by far the dominant one. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that happened in terms of private permissioned blockchains and there's a lot of stuff happening in the supply chain space. I still think a lot of it doesn't make a lot of sense um, and maybe it will someday, but there's a lot of hoops you need to jump through now and it's all kind of setting the stage for maybe this is a valid use case at some point. Um, but I think in the enterprise lands today, uh, if you're trying to do non-financial use cases of blockchain technology, it's primarily just a nice wedge to get people who should be working together anyway to come together and try doing stuff collaboratively, even if they don't actually need a blockchain or probably even want one in many cases. And so with the, the venture wing of what you were talking about, uh, is, is it what, what kind of uh, venture uh, or ventures are you guys looking for? Like, what, do you guys have a category or genre? genre? So, yeah, we're, we, we go pretty broad. So we do everything. Um, we, we've done a couple layer one protocols, um, including, you know, Bitcoin and, and ETH. Um, but beyond that, we look a lot at DeFi stuff recently. Um, there's been some stuff in the gaming space and then I would say kind of technical infrastructure. Um, so, uh, open Zeppelin was, uh, one of, if not our first investment, we've actually known Demi and Manuel for many years. Um, so we, we really try to go pretty broad in terms of, of what we touch. Um, because we think there's there's still a lot of opportunity, um, and we're we're in pretty early days still. Dan, I'm kind of curious. What is your take on DeFi right now, and and what about the DeFi ecosystem on Ethereum kind of attracts, uh, you know, gets you excited? Yeah, well, I think uh, Eric Wall actually had a, a fantastic uh, thread about this recently on Twitter. Um, even as uh, someone who tends to identify as a Bitcoiner, um, it's there's so much excitement around the possibility um, that's emerging here and whether what we're building today is a robust system and whether this is the, the best way to be constructing it is an open question. But the idea of an open financial system where anybody anywhere can create or access any financial instrument, I think is incredibly powerful. And that's, that, that's kind of the promise that got me into Bitcoin in the first place was the idea that 
you're going to be able to have this open protocol that says anybody with an internet connected device can receive store and send value. Um, that's just going to massively reduce the cost of uh, financial services in general and make them accessible to billions of people who can't get them today. Uh, and it's going to create essentially global access to, uh, to financial markets. And so that means interest rates that are applicable across the world and are not uh, bounded by governments and local markets. Uh, and so that is incredibly exciting to me. I think we're in the very early stages. One of the, the things that I think is hardest to balance in this space is not what can this technology be used for and what is possible, but when is it going to become possible? So as an investor saying, you know, we've got a close in an adventure fund and we need to deploy this capital, um, we can say, we think these things are, are absolutely going to be true, but will they be true in the time frame that we're able to invest this capital? Um, so I see a lot of things today where I'm saying, this is absolutely right. You may be a decade or more too early, right? There's a, there's a lot of pets.coms and web vans, and there will eventually be Instacarts and Chewies, but I think timing is a, a, a super important thing that we all need to be thinking about in this space. The uh, Eric Wall thread, uh, was that about how uh, there's the first security token inside of Uniswap? Yeah, that's about realty. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, think no, that, that was my company. He certainly, yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. That was a, so that, that yeah, I mean, he, he built it off your thread, right? So right. talking about uh -huh. realty, uh -huh. but then was saying like, yeah, this is an example of, of where mm -hmm. it is, right? Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, apologize. I need to, I need to go, I need to go deeper on realty too. Um, yeah. But, but I think the, the point is like, uh, this is absolutely pointing towards what the future is and whether mm -hmm. realty is the right product, the right company mm -hmm. at the right time. I just haven't done enough research to know, but mm -hmm. I am sure that either Realty or something like it is going to be a big part of the way the world operates in the future. Yeah, hey, I, I would agree. And we're hopefully crypto advances super, super fast. So the uh, the whole yeah. analogy of pets.com was too early. Well, you can just make it in, in, yeah. until crypto develops. Well, and then, you know, pets.com was the one. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Was was Amazon was maybe a little early in e-commerce, but no, actually they weren't. <laughs> mm -hmm, <laughs> like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so uh, Dan, the reason why I brought you on here is because uh, after talking and, and learning and, and going deeper into the mechanics behind Pool Together, uh, you reached out to me and pointed me in a couple different directions, which opened up my eyes to what could be a whole new arena on top of Ethereum that I personally haven't been paying attention to uh, what's currently going on and what could go on in that arena. And specifically that arena is uh, financial games on top of Ethereum. Uh, and uh, the, the word game in crypto land means a lot of different things. There's like entry exit games, game theory games, uh, any kind of application can kind of be a game. But really what we're, what I'm, we're discussing here is pool together is kind of like a game, but it's literally a game where there are players and winners and losers but it's also, as Leighton in, uh, well, as Leighton from Pull Together will say, it's also a trick to get you to save. Uh, and so the, I think there are yes. these other financial games that are coming about that aren't like, are qualitatively different than just like two people put up uh, $10 of die and then the winner of a chess game gets the die. But, but much more different in the sense that the game is the money and the money is the game. Uh, will you kind of go into what you think this world of Ethereum is when it comes to money games? 
Yeah. So I think what this comes down to is a lot of kind of traditional game theory stuff that rather than just talking about it in the abstract, we've got the ability to try it out in real time. And the word that always comes up with these things is Ponzi. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there's a, a great piece by I think JP Koenig, I think it's his name, where he talks about Ponzi schemes versus Ponzi games. And the distinction to draw there is that traditionally we say Ponzi, we think Ponzi scheme, which has this element of you want to get in before others and you're gonna get paid back by later people, but then unfortunately you're trusting someone and so there ends up being an exit scam and really almost everybody loses. Um, where Ponzi games are different is they still have that same element of you need other people to join after you to make money, but what's different is that it's fully transparent how this works and there's no like back door where someone can exit scam. Everybody understands fully the rules of the game going in. They just think they understand the psychology of the other players better so that they will be the ones who will be able to walk away with more money than they started with. And so I think that's a really important distinction. And you can have aspects of these Ponzi games that uh, really end up, they're, in some ways they're like zeros, they're inherently zero sum. But what that leaves out is the consideration of you can moderate these things and you can pull different levers and human psychology is really powerful. When we talk about designing these uh, kind of smart contracts and protocols and crypto economic systems, people tend to say like, okay, what does economic theory dictate? And I was someone who was pretty anti-token uh, in as, as the whole um, ICO craze was happening in 2017. Um, I had actually written some, some things that I'd shared internally, like in 2016, we basically said like this whole app coin idea, as it was kind of referred to initially at the time, was like, this is stupid. Um, and one of the first things that we built at IDEO Collab back in 2015 was saying like, well, what about community currencies? Can we create these local currencies digitally and have them use nice... This is just, you're running against like basic economics. Like it doesn't make sense. You want the most broadly usable um, unit of account, medium, medium of exchange, store of value. Uh, why would you try to segment it? But that's leaving aside, I wasn't considering there are really strong psychological pulls and there's real power in association within communities and within these subgroups. And that some of these ideas of community currencies applied in different ways are effectively what some of these uh, kind of ICO things were, if you leave aside some of the scamminess, right, is you're trying to create these affinity groups and there actually can be net positive value created because money generally is kind of this like shared narrative, shared illusion. If we can create a shared narrative around some subset of this, it can actually be positive sum for, for people who participate in it. So Dan, uh, in terms of specifically talking about kind of like these Ponzi games, I definitely think that they're super, super interesting. And I think that uh, we're starting to see kind of almost financial institutions of the future that are not going away. Uh, so I don't think that these Ponzi type games are going to go away. And uh, I think they're really interesting. But I do kind of kind of go back to like the question of what is money and like who and, and how that's important in, in these Ponzi games. And you kind of mentioned how, 
you kind of see money as this like shared illusion that we can kind of form around. But I would actually contest that it's not. I would contest that money is a product that um, has features that make it good or bad as a money. And, and people kind of gravitate towards a money like that uh, based on its actual features. So it's not really like an illusion really, rather it's just people using a tool, just like people use hammers for specific things. Um, they're all using money because it serves a specific purpose. So I'm, I'm kind of curious what you think of that. Yeah, well, I guess that's, that's entirely a fair point. I would say um, when we think of it as a tool though, we can't just look at it from its technical or physical properties. We have to look at the social properties and it's really easy to replicate all the non-social elements of Bitcoin, right? That's been done many, many, many times. Um, and so there's, there's a, a piece of social consensus that is really important. Um, and, and we could come to consensus around something other than Bitcoin being in this role of uh, global non-sovereign, non-corporate, um, uncensorable digital store value. And that would be, you know, it could be technically superior to Bitcoin and like, that would be great, but we can't get, we can't make that social switch to something else. Right. Um, and so we've kind of socially agreed on Bitcoin as that thing, I believe. And I think that that belief is, is still has a long way to go in terms of spreading to the rest of the world. Um, but you know, I would say there's not hard uh, deterministic reasons why Bitcoin must be that thing. I think it's it's probabilistically going to be that thing, uh, but it's it's hard to it's hard to exactly put your thing on it, right? We're we're, we're always we've throughout history, you know, you know, Zabo's, uh, you know, shelling out and all that. We can you can read all this literature that, that talks about how money has been created um, and used as a technology throughout various societies. But we, we come to things, things have better properties than others, but ultimately it's whatever we decide on, right? Um, and whatever a group of people that needs to use money decides is money, that is now money. There's nothing, there's nothing you can point to, you can say inherently, this can never be money or this is going to be money. Like it's, it's all context dependent. I mean, I, I would definitely say very context dependent, but I think in a lot of those cases, that was the best technology that was available to those people at the time. Um, and I feel I, like I you guys are actually network talking effects about... are part of the product, which is something to think about here as well. But um, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm derailing <laughs> the conversation a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I always are, talk are, about money, right? I think you guys are generally actually talking about similar things where like the social, the social construct is the product, right? The, the, Right. The, the product of the hardness of gold created the social contract construct and the social narrative. And so like, you can't have one without the other, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're inevitably intertwined. Mm -hmm. right. um, okay. So let's hop back into, into, into games. Um, yeah. And so yeah. Dan, I, I might be assuming this, but I, I think you're a person that follows this world of blockchain money games. Um, and does this conversation start at FOMO 3D or was there like an earlier project? Yeah, so actually, uh, yeah, so FOMO 3D is I think the one that people uh, think of, but actually FOMO 3D is itself built on top of another game mm -hmm. uh, called Proof of We Can'ts okay. um, and created by the same, the same team initially, Team Just, 
Um, they're this anonymous or pseudonymous team. Um, and the kind of P, it's the P3D token mm -hmm. uh, is then used in FOMO 3D as well. Uh, so it's, there's this whole interesting economy and I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole on this uh, maybe a, a year and a half, two years ago. Um, and there's this whole ecosystem of other little games built on top of proof of we cans and the P3D token. Um, so the, the general idea behind it for people who are not familiar is uh, the idea that um, there is a token P3D that can always be minted. It's issued along uh, a bonding curve, right? Which mm -hmm. you read about in your, your piece on pull together. So the idea that each token can always be minted at a slightly higher price than the previous one which also there's a, a similar curve that is below it that is the kind of sell curve and you can always burn your token to sell back along the sell curve. Um, and the idea is that I think there's a 10% um, uh, penalty effectively when you buy uh, P3D tokens, there's a 10% penalty when you sell and there's a 10% penalty if you transfer it to somebody else. Um, but that penalty is essentially paid out to all of the holders of that token. So, um, right. Wow. So, so it gets to this place where it's like, yeah, when you buy in initially, you, if you buy in and you immediately sell, you've like cost yourself right. 20%, 20% right. deposit. but um, other people are buying and selling later or transacting, then you're essentially reaping dividends from all of this. Um, you just hope people don't then all sell out and then right. you've drained the pool and then you're going to not be able to exit, right? So you, you want the game to keep going. As long as the game keeps going, eventually right. you're going to make your money back. Um, but I think the curve is down pretty far from where it was a, a couple of years ago. And then FOMO 3D said, okay, great. We want to create more activity, right? So for P3D holders, they want more people buying, selling, and transacting P3D tokens. And FOMO 3D was a game that utilized these P3D tokens as well and had some interesting dynamics of its own that caused people to keep wanting to buy a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more to be the last person into a pot because the last person into the pot would win. Um, so you can build games on games on games and decide mm -hmm. which level, which sub game you want to be trying to play. Um, okay, so, so let's kind of recap this. There is a token issued by this team of people and this token is issued by a bonding curve and you are incentivized. Well, yeah, let's say it's, it's created by a team. The contracts were created by the team. The, people, the contract, the right, right. The, yes, yes, yes. The team right. is not issuing, and I mm -hmm. believe there was not even any kind of like pre-mine or anything mm -hmm. on it. Mm -hmm. They did buy-in early at the beginning of the curve, but right. I believe even the people who created it just like did it by buying in. Right, 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 right. Okay, so yeah, that, that's a good correction. Uh, the, uh, a team created a contract, which they then participated in their own contract. And the reason why there's incentive to buy early is because anytime somebody buys after you increases the price of the token. Uh, and this, yeah. this uh, initial token is itself a game. Uh, and it's a game because you automatically are down money the moment you buy the token. But every day that you don't sell the token and don't transfer the token, uh, you start capturing, you start collecting more value when other people also buy the token. And so you're automatic from day one, you're when, you're when other people buy or transfer, like transacting token at all. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so, um, and so it, it, it's kind of in the same way that, and this is why the to topic of a gate of, excuse me, I'm going to cut that out. This is why the topic of games is, is such a, um, 
prolific idea in cryptocurrency because Bitcoin is also this game, right? There's 21 million of them. And if you hold as many as you can and you don't sell, well, then the price goes up and you win. But this is like an engineered Bitcoin game where there's this, you know, it's it got different rules. It's got a different token. It's not the the game isn't the 21 million hard cap. The game is buy your token before everyone else and don't sell it. But that's also the same game yeah. as Bitcoin. So like these systems are really, really parallel. Well, yeah, but it's also, it's also, I mean, and again, again, if you think about it, I guess it is the same as Bitcoin. It's like, if you think everybody else is going to sell, you want to sell before they do. Mm -hmm. right. Totally true. Okay. Um, yeah. And this, is this, before we get into how um, FOMO 3D layers on top of the P3D token, is this game yeah. already enough to exist by itself? Or does there need to be another game on top of it, like FOMO 3D, to make this game conducive at all? Like, could this game operate in a, in a, in a silo? Sure. Sure, it could, it could operate in a silo. I think the question is like, what is the kind of half-life on the game, right? And right. Uh, people kind of get bored. They realize like it starts mm -hmm. to decline. And then unless you think you can pump it back up. So it's, mm -hmm. it sounds a lot, a lot, a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. random, you know, shit coins and stuff, right? So uh, what, I, what I do think is um, really interesting is when you start to build these other games on top of it, that kind of extend the life of the mm -hmm. initial like base game mm -hmm. uh, and build around it the question always becomes like any, not any, but many of these different protocols uh, have a similar element on it uh, to them where they're, the question for anybody is like, well, why am I gonna build on top of your protocol and increase the value of your protocol rather than doing it myself, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And we, we even saw that happen with, um, I think it was Zero X and was it, was it DDEX who then forked Zero X and tried to do Hydro I don't think it's worked out too well, but like that it was a valid thing. It was like, they're saying like, okay, well, if we're driving all the value for the protocol and we think there's a lot of value capture at the protocol layer, why wouldn't we mm -hmm. want to own most mm -hmm. of the tokens for that mm -hmm. protocol layer? So there, there's a lot of interesting, essentially games like that that are happening anyway, that are general across all of crypto uh, that I think when you look at a very, very pure financial game where you're not essentially, you can kind of abstract away all of the use cases and everything on top of it, you can say, oh, that's kind of what's going on here. And that if you can game out what happens in the most pure version of this game, you can then say, okay, now I understand that these are, are very strong dynamics that are influencing more advanced versions of this game in other areas. So Dan, I'm kind of curious, like which games are you seeing right now that are getting you really excited? Um, well, so so pull together is is a kind of a, a version of this game that I'm very excited about. Um, there was actually so going directly actually to uh, this proof of we cans thing. There was actually uh, the winner, I believe. I think there were like the grand prize and the first place winner at the DeFi hackathon this this past weekend in San Francisco. Um, uh, uh, Tina Zen uh, helped create this, but it was Liqui 3D, the game of dexes. So they actually took some of the mechanics from FOMO 3D and applied it to DEXs. So one of the big challenges, with, if not like the big challenge with, with DEXs with decentralized exchanges has been, there's just not a lot of volume there. Uh, there's not a lot of liquidity. Um, because there's not a lot of liquidity, market makers don't think it's worth it to come in. And because there's no market makers in there, other people don't want to come trade. And so just, it's a really a hard cold start problem. Um, and so, 
the the thing that they built was saying, okay, uh, we're going to take the trading fees, or at least part of the trading fees that are accrued, and they go into a pot. And whoever, and then sets the timer, I think up to an, an hour, it'll like increment it by like a minute each time a trade happens, up to an hour. If that timer ever runs to zero, the last person to have executed a trade gets that whole pot. <laughs> and so basically it, what it makes sure is that you should never go longer than a minute without there being at least one trade because there's always going to be this incentive. If you think that nobody else is going to trade you want to get that last trade in there mm-hmm. so that you can claim the pot because the pool of fees that have been accrued are going to be greater than the fees that you're paying on that one trade. Um, so like, it's crazy, right? But you're, you're but taking, they also and, can and fail it, because if somebody wins, then the incentive drops to zero. Yeah, but then it starts all over again, right? You yeah, still have a DEX, right? right? You still have, right, you still yeah. have a DEX. It's still a DEX. So if you still want to trade one thing for the other, someone's going to eventually want to trade one thing for the other thing, right? Uh-huh. Prices aren't going to stay in perfect equilibrium forever if nobody trades. So as soon as somebody says, hey, I actually want to buy some ETH with my DAI, mm-hmm. well, now there's a little bit of a trade fee in the pool. And so mm-hmm. somebody else is going to try to claim that trade mm-hmm. fee and it, it kicks off the process all over again. Holy so I think shit. it's really clever. Um, but then the question is like, well, can you build something with like such an obvious like game that's like kind of secondary to mm-hmm. the intended purpose, which is allowing people to trade one asset for the other? Mm-hmm. And if you if you layer that on, does it almost like distort and destroy that, or does it actually add value and solve that problem mm-hmm. of bootstrapping liquidity right. on a DEX? Are we playing um, the same I'm, game, I'm or did sure. we create a different one? Yeah, you may have created an entirely new game that may be more compelling to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that then allows the other use case, to, yeah. But 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 hey, oh, maybe yeah. maybe then maybe the end result is like okay, you actually kind of like hide different pieces of this behind different interfaces, and so people who want to play this like FOMO three D type game can play the FOMO three D type game, and in the act of playing that game, they're actually providing benefit for people who are just like, hey, I just want like a non custodial exchange where I can trade one asset mm-hmm. for the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, and that's one of the things when you talked about like potentially tokenizing uh, pool together, I think there's the potential for there to almost effectively end up being some two different types of games there, right? There's the savings game on one side, and then there's the um, people who are kind of capitalizing that other pool on the other side. And you, you don't have to, you can play one or the other, you don't have to play both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's, that's really important. And that's a big distinction from a lot of the 2017 era token projects where they were kind of forcing people. It was like, in theory, like you want to, we're going to create a product that you want to use. But by the way, if you want to use the product, we're forcing you to use our token. And so you have to play the speculation game of our utility token in order to use this product. Um, And so I'm more intrigued by this newer wave of protocols and of companies being built that says, hey, there are some game dynamics at play here, but let's separate those out. Right, and so that people who want exposure to that game aspect of it, they can play that game. But you should, if this protocol, if this, if this product does have real utility, that utility should be able to stand on its own. Because if it can't, then you're really just playing Ponzi games. Totally, and kind of like talking about uh, this idea of like the game 
having positive effects on the secondary use case and even like making it more robust and more liquid in the case of DEXs kind of like makes me think of like how the like the Bitcoin bubbles um, benefit Bitcoin and how it benefits these bubbles also benefit these other cryptocurrencies like we're all kind of in this massive gamified world now because it's it's a crypto Bitcoin incentive world now like that's the world we live in. And I often on Twitter, like we'll say like, we're living in hyper Bitcoinization. I may have a slightly different definition of that than most people, but I think like that, that's the process that we're in right now. So it's pretty amazing to kind of hear how in DeFi, at least, you know, this is being experimented on like in such an acute way, Uh, uh, very interesting. And personally for me, try to stay open-minded to, you know, where these things can go. I'm kind of curious, like, in terms of a moat for Ethereum and what this means for Ethereum, like what do you think about like these DeFi primitives being built on ETH and is that a big moat for ETH or is is that something that like the, these are tests and it could be put somewhere else easily? Like what do you think about all of that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think um, uh, as, as has become the topic um, in, in DeFi land, composability is the big thing, right? So there's there's two problems if you want to do DeFi on a different uh, network than Ethereum. One is that you don't have the other protocols. You don't have a compound to build on. You don't have a maker to build on. You don't have a Uniswap to build on. You don't got um, money. The other thing, and you don't have you don't have money, right? You don't you don't have the base stats. You don't you don't have ETH is money, right? You don't have mm-hmm. that. Uh, which I think is why also there's like some excitement around um, are there ways to bring either DeFi to Bitcoin or Bitcoin to DeFi because like. The, the only better money than Ethereum right now is Bitcoin. Um, so <laughs> that kind of gets you, David. But um, yeah, but but right when you're talking about like the size, like Bitcoin is twice the market cap of everything else put together. Um, and so if you want quality collateral um, for your DeFi like protocols, the in my view, the only current quality collateral that's actually a step up from ETH today is Bitcoin, right? I think I'm... I'm excited about multi multi collateral die. Um, I'm a little apprehensive about the transition, and I'm not loving the asset choices that are available to add as other collateral types right now. I kind of wish it would stay ETH only um, because there's questions about like what's the best trustless way or trust minimized way to get Bitcoin in. If you could get a really good trust minimized way, maybe TBTC is that thing when it you know officially launches. If you can get that in, great. Everything else, I'm pretty skeptical of at the moment so does tron fit into this conversation because the makers of of fomo 3d are building on tron right like i actually kind of had this hunch that like maybe this is actually why tron isn't a dead chain like is this this kind of stuff happening on tron too i i I think so honestly i haven't looked too deeply into it i was a little i mean i think i've got a pretty similar opinion of of (laughs) tron and, and some of the approaches there to most people in the space um so I, I I wish we'd seen like Team Just go and build this game. I, I assume they must have gotten some kind of compensation to go build on Tron, or you know maybe they were saying there needs to be volume here and that they think it's going to be so popular that it would really bloat Ethereum and that Ethereum mm. couldn't handle the throughput. And Tron has better throughput right now, and I don't think that's. I mean, I, I think it gives up a lot of things to get that better throughput, um, which I'm not comfortable with those trade offs. But I can understand from the mm-hmm. perspective that if they're viewing this as an experiment, 
it's reasonable to go and try building this experiment on another platform because I think they have created a, a compelling enough game, uh, which we haven't talked about yet, but we can, uh, that uh, it, it is a game in and of itself and it doesn't need the composability of other DeFi primitives to make it interesting. Right. So you know, maybe that is actually the right way to kind of bootstrap DeFi and other chain is to create mm-hmm. a kind of financial game that can stand on its own and use that to start getting the flywheel turning. Right, right, right. Kind of in the same way that MakerDAO started the flywheel for DeFi in, in Ethereum. Yeah. 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 So I totally do want to go in that direction that you just mentioned. But first, I want to actually kind of give people a walkthrough of what uh, FOMO 3D is because the next game that we're going to talk about after FOMO 3D, same makers as FOMO 3D, same makers as the proof of weak hands token with the bonding curve that we already talked about. Uh, and so uh, this ecosystem that these guys are building is really, really interesting. So can, can you kind of give us the play-by-play for how FOMO 3D works? Yeah, it's been a little while, so I need to kind of refresh myself. There's there's some additional complexities to this that I don't remember exactly and I don't want to get them wrong. But the basic idea is that um, you can buy these, I think they call them like tickets into the game. Keys. And keys, keys, keys that's it. Yeah, so you buy keys. And by buying the key, if you are the last person who bought a key when the timer runs to zero, then you win this big pot. And uh, anytime a new key is bought, it adds some time back to the clock. Um, and money into and the so pot. And money into the pot. Yes, the pot keeps growing. Um, and so there's more and more incentive to be that last person to buy that last key. Um, I think there's some other mini games that go on within that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when this kind of first built up a big pot, I believe, it, I mean, it's still going, right? It's a smart contract. It's like, not, there's no, uh, kind of custodial control over any of it. There's no, um, no, nobody owns the contract in a way that they can modify it. So I believe it's still going. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was some interesting game. I remember somebody wrote a great blog post kind of explaining exactly what happened where people had built these bots to like make sure that they were buying and trying to game it. And then somebody figured out how all these other bots were running and figured out how to trick them mm-hmm. by playing games with like gas prices on their transactions mm-hmm. to fool everybody else and then slip theirs in there and win the pot. It was it was really, really cool how they did it. Um, I remember which I think is that also forever ago. An amazing, it was, yeah, it was like it was this amazing way of like kind of stress testing um, some of the game theory about uh, the Ethereum kind of transactions and, and, and like mempool and stuff in general. Um, so it was, it was really cool. Yeah. I think I actually remember Amin retweeting that and I'd read the thread and I just understood none of it, uh, because I was, <laughs> I was much, much less educated yeah. with how, how uh, Ethereum works as I am now, but not to say I would be able to understand it now. Um, so if, if listeners if our Redditors who uh, were around Reddit like four to five years ago, they did this April Fool's experiment called The Button. And The Button had this uh, one minute timer, 60 second timer, was that right? I think it was 60 seconds. And it would wind yeah, and so. it, would, it would count down. And every Reddit account that had been made the day of the release or earlier had one click that they could make. And then when you clicked it, it would reset the timer. And then you would be given some like badge, some color uh, that's associated with like how long the timer had gone before you clicked it. Uh, and then, you know, so every 60 seconds, somebody's clicking the timer and the button went on for like six weeks or something. Like the, every single 
uh, the button was pressed at least once a minute, oftentimes more than once a minute for like six weeks. And most of the time it was between 60 seconds and 50 seconds. Like people were clicking it so much that it almost never uh, went less than 50 seconds. But at some point, so they, the community let it slip and it went down to zero seconds and the button game was over. And so this is also kind of how FOMO 3D works. But when you click the button, you're paying Ether into a pool and then you're also getting this ticket out, this key that, um, and I think the way that this works is that the key gets you a small share of the winning pot regardless of who clicked the button last but also it gets you future dividends from all future key buyers. And so this is what you were getting with when you were talking about a Ponzi game. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having been a great podcast host and going and doing your <laughs> research on that. <laughs> you guys, I want to tell you about our newest sponsor, Celsius.network. Celsius is a really cool application for both lending out your cryptocurrency as well as taking out loans or collateralized uh, loans for your cryptocurrency, right? So you either collateralize it and take out stable coins or you can lend it out and get interest on your crypto and their savings accounts. They have pretty much every mainstream crypto you can think of. They support it. They support Bitcoin. They support Ethereum. They support every single stable coin. And they have the absolute best rates on stable coins. It's actually really impressive. Like if you have stable coins, this destroys any sort of like a bank account or anything like that. And the reason why they can get you close to 10% on your stable coins is because they are trying to be a new kind of financial institution with 80% profits sharing and really, really small margins. They are trying to make it as easy as possible. Totally, uh, the, the rates are, are pretty incredible. I feel like these are these guys are the finance of borrowing lending platforms, just because they accept so many different coins: uh, Ethereum, Ripple, Bitcoin Cash, Zcash, Zerox, Dash, Stellar, Paxos, uh, Hong Kong Dollar, Australian Dollar, EOS. Like they they've got it all, uh, and and their rates are pretty insane. So over eight percent on USDC right now. Uh, 3.75% on Ether, uh, eight, eight, over 8% on Maker, uh, on DAI. Uh, so these rates are all pretty high, higher than, than the DeFi rate right now. So if you guys want to trade your contract risk for centralization risk and get two more percent on your DAI or USDC, Celsius Network is probably the place for you. And if you use promo code POV after you sign up, you can get $10 of BTC when you make a deposit of 200 or more. So if you're going to do it, make sure to get that $10 of BTC with promo code POV. Next up, I want to tell you guys about Bitcoin 2020. Bitcoin 2020, of course, is a conference that is put on by myself and the Bitcoin Magazine team. Getting really excited about this event, we just announced Tony Hawk as our second speaker. Uh, the speaker we announced before that was Nick Zabo. We're trying to change it up, make sure that we have, you know, we kind of uh, differ from the usual crew. Uh, so Bitcoin 2020, we're trying to keep it interesting. We're also keeping it interesting with a complete festival vibe. Anyone that went to Bitcoin 2019 will attest to how much fun it was. Use promo code POV for, I believe it's 25% off your ticket, which are, is already super cheap. But yeah, POV at checkout. Get that 25% off. Make sure to go to the best Bitcoin event of 2020 in March in San Francisco. Make sure to go to Bitcoin2020conference.com. So this new game, 
this new game that they're yeah. they're building out. Uh, it's called Just Game. Uh, can yeah. You, can you walk us through that one? Yeah. So first of all, I, I encourage everyone to just go and kind of read the. I think it's only a, still a partial white paper that they published, mm -hmm. but the way they position it is really interesting. They refer to the game as as her. Um, and they talk about her as this AI, which is getting people to do her bidding. Um, and I think that's a fun way to conceptualize it. One thing that this team is really good at is storytelling around their game. Um, and the idea here is um, unlike bonding curves, right? Where we talked about the, the price being incremented with each new uh, thing that's issued. The, the idea here is that you can always mint new new tokens. They're actually tokens, but they call them gift boxes. So you mm -hmm. can mint a new gift box and the price of a new gift box doesn't change. It's always the same as it is from day one till day infinity, that they're always the same price. Um, and the idea is that each new uh, gift box that's minted, the cost is distributed to all the other, split evenly among all the other gift boxes in existence. And gift boxes uh, are, uh, I believe, non-transferable. Um, and so the idea is that if you want to um, get the accrued value of that gift box, you have to break the gift box, unwrap the gift box, and you can pull out all the value that's accrued. And so the incentive here is that you can, uh, you, you want to buy in early before other people buy in. But unlike the uh, proof of we can's game where you can watch your value go up and then it, like it's going up, it's going up. And then everyone decided to exit the game. Oh shit. And now like, you know, your, your tokens are worth less than they were before here. The gift value of the gift box can only ever increase. It can never decrease because other people opening their box doesn't pull anything out of your box. The only person who can pull stuff out of your box is you. But once you've pulled it out, then you know you're no longer accruing pieces of future transactions. So I think that that was a a kind of like mind exploding moment for me. Where it was like, wow, you can do you can do the bonding curve thing, but there there's no sliding back down the curve. Mm -hmm. The curve only goes up. Um, so that was that was pretty cool. So how does that work? Because like we're not minting magic value out of thin air. So where is that value coming from? Right. So the value is coming from all the people who who create gift boxes after you, right? Oh, so okay. so if, the price of the if, gift if, box if goes no, up. Yeah. No, no, no. The price of the gift box doesn't go up. So like let's say let's just for argument's sake, right? Say mm -hmm. that like one one ETH. Let's let's pretend it's on ETH for a moment because that would be you know we'd love to live in that world. So let's say one ETH for, for one gift box. Um, then the the next person who buys the gift box pays one eighth for their gift box and their uh, one eighth, I believe at that point for the second gift box, which is like all go entirely to, well, I think maybe it's split between themselves and the previous existing gift box. So the first gift box holder now is one and a half ETH. Second gift box holder has 0.5 ETH in their mm -hmm. gift box. Okay, so they're the down third gift ETH. box gets, right? The third gift box gets minted and that, ETH goes a third, a third, a third across the three gift boxes that are now in existence, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And it continues so on and so forth. So, you know, uh, but, you know, let's say that person in the beginning, they're like, now, like, I've got um, one and uh, what is it like? Uh, Math. 
Yeah, math, math, some answers, something like that, I don't know. Um, and um, like, great, I'm up. I'm gonna open my gift box and I'm gonna take out all the ETH. I'm out, I'm done. Mm-hmm. People who hold gift boxes two and three, they haven't, their, their gift box value hasn't gone down. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when gift box four gets created, now it's being split across three boxes rather than being split across four boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's this interesting game where you actually, you, you actually as a gift box holder, rather than being like, I hope people don't sell their token back along the bombing curve, you're like, actually, I hope they do open their gift mm-hmm. boxes because then token. I get a larger share. They, yeah, if they burn their token, then mm-hmm. I get a larger share of the revenue from any future tokens that get minted. Um, so it kind of it, it kind of flips the game on its head a bit, um, and and I think that's that's super compelling. So that in my head, I think that exactly maps on to the two token models that I illustrated for pull together. One is the bonding curve, and one is the finite supply but burnable token, where you want everyone yeah. else to burn your token so that the number of tokens goes down, versus the bonding curve where it's this flexible flexible supply and you want everyone else to buy in after you. I think the important thing to know, or go, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I was to say, so the way I conceptualize that is um, almost you can create like a, a, a two by two. Um, you've got like two axes. One is um, fixed supply versus variable supply. And one is fixed mm-hmm. price versus variable price, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. if you have a fixed supply of tokens, you can either say, here's the price and we're gonna sell everything at that price. Mm-hmm. Or you could have some sort of like auction mm-hmm. system to allow that to, to vary, mm-hmm. um, but there still is that fixed one. And then when you say there's a variable token supply uh, or a variable price rather to, mm-hmm. to the tokens, you can say, okay, um, well, we're either going to go on this bonding curve. Each one costs a little bit more than, than the last, or you can say, mm-hmm. hey, no, there's a fixed price. And so the supply is variable, but the price for each token will be fixed. Um, well, it should and- also be, it should be a two by two by two axis. And the, the extra axis that you should add to that is also if you have a fixed supply token, well, then you have a token that always goes up in value. And if you have a variable, um, variable supply token on the token on the bonding curve, you have a token that can go up or down in value. You can be a loser in this game, right? Yeah, essentially, yeah. Having, having uh, yes and no, you don't necessarily need that because you could take elements of the, the just game things. So you could always, you could charge a little bit more for each incremental token that is minted. Mm-hmm. Um, but say that, um, you know, you're, what you're selling it back for is always a, your share of the, the pot, right? Mm-hmm. So each new token increases the value of the pot. So even if somebody burns their, burns their token, they're only taking their share of that, their proportional share of the pot. It doesn't reduce the value of each of my tokens in terms of their claim on the pot. And again, it, it's it's just really all you're doing, all you need to do is just eliminate that sell curve and just say, if we're selling it along uh, or you're minting them along a uh, an increasing curve, but when you want to sell it back, it's always just proportional to what it is. So as long as the cost of minting a new token is always greater than the per token reserve value that's currently in the pool, then other people can't see their tokens go down in value. Or at least the reserve, right? Because these things could trade at a premium to the reserve value, but the reserve value at least will never go down. 
So I find these to be very interesting. And I know that something that David alluded to is you think that these things could act as money, right? Or it could be competitive as like a store of value or have these kind of features. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So I guess it depends. Getting back to our earlier our question on money, like I would, I'm highly skeptical of the idea that by using this style of game that you could ever create something that would be better than, than ETH or better than PTC as money. Um, it's, it's just really hard to see that. Um, part of it is just due to the complexity, right? Money should be simple. And that's one of the, I think the great cases, I think uh, Andreas Antonopoulos had an old blog post about this, how you want protocols to be as simple and single purpose as possible to allow other things to be, to be built on top of them. Um, and so like money is, is essentially a, a protocol, right? And so one of the great cases for Bitcoin as money is that it's just trying to be money. And with Ethereum, ETH is meant to be a bunch of different things. And so that introduces a lot of complexity. And does that make it like better money because there's more functionality or not as good money because you've introduced more complexity to it. And so because it's not just being used as money, uh, maybe it won't function as well because you can't optimize for all the things. Um, so I think that's that's one of the situations you can do here is that these things are not intended to just be money. They're intended to be a tool in a game. And so because they're not specialized and optimized for a single purpose, it's hard for them to be as fit for purpose for that thing. So I think the money conversation is actually a, a little bit tangential to this game conversation. And, and the reason why I think this, this game conversation is worthwhile is, is maybe it adds to the moneyness of Ether, but it really, the, it fits into this um, narrative I have of Ethereum as this landscape for um, applications, specifically lockup applications. And the whole idea of DeFi is, is centered around collateralization. And so far, no product protocol has ever even tried to have like a maker DAO where you can have an under collateralized CDP or vault. That makes no sense. Like it has to be collateralized. Uh, and so all of these applications on top of Ethereum, like Uniswap, MakerDAO, uh, Compound, DYDX, like all of these things are locking up Ether for their functionality. And so now we, and, and those are finance, those are finance applications, which are kind of like games, but only in the same way that like life is a game where like you have to choose your decisions to like, you know, do I take the bus today or do I take the car? It's kind of like how that's a game, even though that's not really a game. But now we're actually literally talking about games that are also Ether lockup applications. And so we've gone through um, four games so far. We have the, um, the, the DEX uh, liquidity game. We have the, uh, the proof of weak hands bonding curve game. We have FOMO 3D. And then we just have this uh, just, uh, what's it called? Just, just game. Just game. So these, these are four games, uh, three of them made by the same people, which is really cool. Uh, and, and all of these concepts are, are locking up ether to provide some sort of like return for players or liquidity for the exchange. And I just want everyone to, to think about like, well, maybe these, maybe these games are really replicatable and, and also pull together. So five games now. Um, and so maybe these games are really replicatable and you can like produce them, uh, across a variety of different, um, possible games uh, linking in or not linking in to other applications. And all of a sudden we have these token sinks 
that kill the velocity of ether as a money and keeps it locked up and not moving and away from the secondary market. And so my bull case for Ethereum is these games explode and the, they act as massive token sinks for ether and reduce its velocity. And when you reduce the velocity, you increase the price. Which makes it money, maybe, maybe yeah. not. I don't know. Yeah. So ether itself is a game, right? A financial mm -hmm. game. Yeah. Ethereum, and this is yeah. what Kenny Rowe said uh, when he came on our, our podcast where he considers Ethereum is the massive DAO, not like MakerDAO or not how like Compound is kind of a DAO or Uniswap is kind of a DAO. Ethereum is the DAO. The Ethereum is the massive game to play for locking up ether. That's the main value proposition of Ethereum. I mean, I, and I think Bitcoin is to the same thing about Bitcoin, yeah. right? I was about to say, I would contend 100%. that everyone's just trying to lock it up. hundred uh, percent. So, yeah. I don't, like, so Dan, I'm, I'm curious, like, what's your view on the landscape of crypto right now as a whole? Like, and if you were to say allocate to these things, like, what do you consider? What is just like something that, you know, you wouldn't consider at all? Uh, something I wouldn't consider at all. Well, I guess... Generally, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> I can't make any specific investment recommendations, uh, uh, but uh, I think it's my job to generally consider a pretty pretty wide variety of things. Um, I don't think I would, uh, you know, in my professional capacity, say like we should invest in something like proof of we can's like FOMO three D. I think that's that's probably just not wise. Um, but I think that they're very interesting to to learn from. Um, I think what, what will I not invest in? I won't invest in anything that I think is an outright scam. Um, and I think there's a pretty wide uh, range of, of what people in this space would call a scam. So everyone you know, has to decide for themselves what, what, what is the criteria that, that makes something a certifiable scam. Um, I, uh, I, I think that's one of the interesting things about, about Tron actually, to be honest, is that um, I think some of the, the stuff that's happened and some of the stuff that like, you know, the way Justin Sun has conducted himself, where I'm like, nope, wouldn't touch it, wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. And yet the, the general strategy that they've been employing of saying like, okay, we've somehow memed ourselves up to this large market cap. And like, now we have this like treasury and we're going to go out and actually buy like real companies, real products with real users. And we're going to like kind of tokenize them and bring them onto our platform. That's actually a really interesting go-to-market strategy. I think the way they kind of got themselves up to that market cap to have that war chest is like super questionable, but the general strategy of like existing businesses, like finding a, a reason to tokenize them and using that to actually ultimately build activity on a network um, is probably a much, uh, more likely to succeed strategy than a lot of these new layer one networks that are going out and have this major cold start problem. Like we have yet another smart contract platform and no one's doing anything. And so we're gonna try to like get these people to build these little new applications on it. It's like, well, or you go out, you buy a big thing that already has users and then you just kind of shoehorn them onto your platform. Like that, that seems a actually more more interesting go-to-market strategy than what we're seeing a lot of teams do today. What do you think is the go-market strategy for Bitcoin and Ethereum? Like what, what is being employed yeah. here? Uh, <laughs> uh, great, great question. I mean, 
um, I think one of the things about um, Bitcoin that I find um, really interesting is, is I'm like super bullish on Bitcoin um, and I want to see a lot of things built on top of, of Bitcoin and use, using Bitcoin. Um, the, the issue I, I come at, into in terms of like investing in a lot of these things, it's like there's always the question of like how much, or as an entrepreneur, right, is how much is one individual company going to move the needle for Bitcoin and Bitcoin adoption versus real macro um, environment stuff that's really going to drive Bitcoin adoption. Um, so while I came to Bitcoin initially very much from a technology perspective rather than like a financial economic perspective, um, like a monetary policy was not something I was thinking about at all when I first got interested in Bitcoin. Um, I, I absolutely think the macro environment when you look at like you know, NERP and like negative yield bonds and just like all the all the craziness that's happening in the world today, um, the kind of geopolitical machinations between these like massive countries and, and how everyone's becoming more nationalistic in various ways. Like, I just think all these factors are gonna, gonna drive Bitcoin um, and, and Bitcoin growth and Bitcoin adoption. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's I'm like, I love it. I wanna help it succeed. I don't know what we can do to help move the needle significantly because I just think it's some amount of it is more or less inevitable. Um, I think Ethereum's in maybe a little bit of a different space where I think um, there are, in, in some ways, it's it's more plausible to me that some smart contract platform could compete with Ethereum um, than that some new token can compete with Bitcoin and it's kind of bigger, bigger role. I do think Ethereum has about as far a lead over most other things as Bitcoin does over, over Ethereum and, and, and other things too. So like, I think they, to some extent, they both reached likely escape velocity, nothing is sure. Um, but I do think that there are more potential failure modes at this stage for Ethereum than there is for Bitcoin. And that's reflected in the market price. So, so I, I do think that, you know, continuing when I, when I see like, you know, Ethereum, what are Ethereum's paths to get bigger and, and to grow more, I do think, uh, you know, DeFi is one of those ways. And I, I can't believe I've already fallen into like using DeFi much prefer the term of finance, although I'm also very interested in, um, I think Multicoin had a great blog post recently, exchanges are open finance and like the distinction is already been made about some things can be open finance and DeFi is almost like a subset or, or more, more restrictions around what qualifies as DeFi versus what qualifies as open finance. Um, yeah, I think that's that can be a big driver. I think um, uh, I, I am actually very bullish on the idea of DAOs generally, of kind of new, new ways of organizing people and aligning incentives um, because as, as you know, we discussed, you know, you can think of Bitcoin as a DAO and think of Ethereum as a DAO. Um, I don't know that we've got the right other models yet, um, but uh, I, I do think that there is something incredibly interesting there, a new way of, of organizing capital and human human effort um, and harnessing that to, to bring new things into the world. Um, but that's still, that's still taking shape. Um, and I do think it will likely be relatively broadly applicable, uh, but 
we're still at a stage where best practices haven't emerged. We don't understand the dynamics in it as such yet. And so the failure rates of things that try to be DAOs and, 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 and do stuff today is going to be very high. Um, but eventually it should be somewhat akin to, you know, the kind of corporate structure, C-Corps, LLCs, where like, yeah, most of those do end up failing too. Um, but uh, there's, there are kind of known practices to grow certain types of organizations, certain types of businesses. And I think kind of internet native businesses where incentives are aligned via a scarce token that is created and issued in some fashion, that that will be a, uh, a big and important thing in the world. Dan, one last question. Is there a place for VC coins in the world? Uh, we'll define VC coin. Sure. Just, as, uh, as, as a VC, I, I hope there's a place for VC. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like uh, VC coins, you know, a, a chain that is uh, had a massive pre-sale straight to yeah. VCs and they're pretty much bootstrapping some tech. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, we, we, we've made some of those investments. So like, I, I believe there's some, some chance of success, um, but largely like, you know, um, uh, you know, we, we, we were, you know, disclosure, like we invested in near, I think that's the only like kind of general smart contract platform that we invested in. That's not like, um, uh, you know, something that was already public and launched and, and able to buy the open market. Um, we generally haven't done a ton of those. I know a lot of people have, um, I think it's interesting, right? I think if you go the VC coin route, I think securities laws are a big issue. Um, and uh, my colleague Gavin McDermott had a great uh, thread and gave a talk uh, at an event we hosted last week about how um, uh, the SAFT represents uh, much of what is wrong with the industry today in that uh, regulation and the, the specter of regulation is kind of distorting people. So they're, they're doing things to not run afoul of what they think regulators will think or do rather than what they actually think is best to build their system and get it used and adopted and make it useful in the world. Um, so if we did not have those things uh, to worry about, yes, that likely leads to a lot of scamming and we need to figure out better self-regulatory apparatus. There are very good reasons we have all the security laws and stuff that we have, right? They would not have been created without something bad having happened that resulted in those laws needing to be passed in the first place. Um, that said, uh, I do think that for you know folks that have raised massive war chests, um, like I said, I think that the Tron approach is something that is interesting and that those are ways that you could, in theory, bootstrap one of these networks. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, not to bring it back to the money conversation, right? But you talk about, you know, money being the properties of certain things make them better money. There are technical approaches to uh, you know, decentralized networks and smart contract platforms that are probably objectively superior to others. And so, uh, you know, is it better for the world if the default global smart contract platform that we're using is technically superior? Yeah. So if we, if, if, you know, VC funding helps bring that thing into the world and can help get it widely adopted. Great. Um, I think there's a lot of things that you lose by having large VC stakes in networks early on. And I think that increasingly 
A, it's getting a little late to try to start a new smart contract platform from scratch, but B, um, I think the teams that ha are, are doing things today are not trying to hold as much of the token themselves or sell as much to investors. They're realizing that uh, community and trying to figure out a way to distribute stuff and, and create evangelists who can also see upside and helping grow, that that's really important. Um, and we can you can never go back, as we saw with, I think, um, a lot of the excitement around Grin was kind of like recreating the Bitcoin origin story in some ways. Um, you can't recreate ways the way that Bitcoin had its growth trajectory, the way Ethereum had its growth trajectory. Um, so I don't think Bitcoin and Ethereum are the end of the like crypto blockchain story. I think there will be other relevant things that are at least as large as Bitcoin and Ethereum are today. Um, I, you know, I think Bitcoin and Ethereum will keep growing, uh, but I think there will be other very massive things that are created. They just won't be created according to the same playbook because 2019, 2020 is not the same as, you know, 2015 is not the same as 2009. Dan, thanks so much for coming on POV Crypto. Really appreciate your, your time. This was a great conversation, one that I think that people are not having and should have more of. So thank you for, for helping me kickstart that. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, Dan, this is absolutely fascinating. Where can people find you and who do you want to hear from? Um, they can uh, find me on Twitter uh, at D.Elitzer. Um, and uh, I work at IDEO Collab. So at IDEO Collab, uh, you can also you know, find us there. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty reachable. Uh, definitely want to hear from anybody who's working on an early stage venture in kind of crypto blockchain lands. Um, especially, I'm personally interested in a lot of DeFi stuff, but we, like I said, we invest uh, pretty broadly. Um, so if you think also that a um, design-led process um, and the idea of building something that is going to be used not just by the people who are in crypto today, uh, but by the rest of the world is is interesting, uh, we are we are here and excited to to help and work with you. Dan, I totally forgot to bring this up, but I also have to give you thanks for writing your article, uh, Superfluid Collateral and Open Finance, <laughs> uh, because it was absolutely integral to my talk at Ethereal and, and my article, Ether, A New Model for Money. So uh, if you guys haven't read either of those articles, start with Dan's. It's called Superfluid Collateral and Open Finance. It's on his medium, uh, and then you can go and read mine. Well, thank, thank you for the permission. Yeah, uh, I actually had someone send me a, uh, a photo of you giving that talk with like the super fluid collateral behind you. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Um, but yeah, I maybe maybe for another conversation, um, I, I, I still think uh, there's a lot of stuff that I wrote in there that's kind of come true already, but I don't think people understand yet exactly how much um, we're gonna see collateral become very, very, very fluid, um, especially with the ETH2, should we get there, knock on wood? Um, I think there's gonna be some dynamics that people have not fully gamed out. Um, yeah, uh, the, more to come. The, the whole over the whole superfluid collateral is just uh, a concept that we all know is true. All right, I got a dog that is requesting my attention, so let's sign this off. All right, guys, you can follow right. the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Medium. Christian, you can find me on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks. Thanks again, Dan. This is a lot of fun and makes me think about how we're all in this like crazy crypto Bitcoin game. So uh, very exciting stuff. Uh, we're yeah. all part Take of the Ponzi game. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Bye.